semiconductor chips have gotten all of the attention and a $50 billion subsidy from the government. But without the more prosaic printed circuit boards or PCBs underneath them, chips don't do anything. PCB manufacturing has also mostly moved offshore, and now there's a possible bill pending to help that industry too as the nation focuses on the supply chain. We get more now from PCB industry spokesman David Schild. Mr. Schild, good to have you in studio. Thanks for having me, Tom. And give us the statistics. I mean, PCBs were started here, and they used to be just a piece of cardboard with holes in it, and you'd stick the transistor in and solder the backside. It's a pretty high-tech thing now, printed circuit boards, and how much is still here and how much has gone overseas? Well, you're absolutely right that a printed circuit board is an example of high technology, and it's part of a microelectronics ecosystem that makes really every aspect of modern life possible. From F-35s to F-150s, we've got to have semiconductors, but those semiconductors have got to sit on printed circuit boards to make pretty much all of modern life function for us. And you're right. We've had a significant contraction in the size of American industry. 25 years ago, we had 30% of market share. 30% of PCBs were produced here in America. In real terms, that was 2,200 companies. Today, less than 4% of PCBs are made in America by less than 150 companies. So there's been a very significant contraction and real offshoring of a critical technology. And for the semiconductors to be useful, as you say, they have to be attached to the board. And that all involves very sophisticated wave soldering machinery, pick and place, numerically controlled. It's pretty amazing to watch. Does the population of the boards, does that also take place mostly overseas? Or can boards be shipped back here and we still do the assembly and soldering and all of that here? I think that you're talking about a global ecosystem that's going to remain multi-continent, right, multi-country. What we see is a real imbalance in the supply chain, a real dependency on one region of the world. And as we saw during the pandemic, when we extend supply chains overseas and we have to rely on foreign sourcing, sometimes we can have empty store shelves. We can have empty car dealership parking lots. That's not what we want. I think the imbalance, the contraction of this industry, it's not healthy for the economy. And certainly, as the CHIPS Act makes an investment in American semiconductors, we should be mating those up with American substrates. We should be mating those up with American PCBs right here and not have all this technology going back and forth across the ocean. And the semiconductor industry is very well organized. It's got several national associations that have had a lot of policy impact for many, many years. I used to go to the annual Semiconductor Industry Association dinner and get chicken fried steak there with Jerry Sanders. What about PCBs? Are they less organized? Is that more of a mom-and-pop type of business? Well, two years ago, a number of industry executives realized that we needed an investment by the federal government and we needed a voice in Washington. And thus, the Printed Circuit Board Association of America, or PCBAA, was formed. We've grown to over 27 members today, and certainly uh, we need to get bigger and speak with a louder voice in Washington. But I think that we're really the lead uh, sled dog when it comes to advocating for this part of the micro electronics ecosystem. And of course, we're partnered with organizations like IPC and USPAE on this effort. And I think our friends in the semiconductor space understand that this is a partnership. And uh, as they grow, we need to grow as well. And the nature of the PCB industry that is still in the United States, is it the multi-layer, really complex type of finely manufactured board? Or is it just the uh, 
well, there's there's lower levels that you would might put in a toaster as opposed to an F-35. I think you'd find varying levels of complexity. But, of course, products that end up in national defense applications have to be made, made right. here in America. The Defense Department requires it. Our members are proud to do it. And so certainly for a lot of aerospace and defense applications, right here in America, we're making state-of-the-art printed circuit boards. All right. We're speaking with communications consultant David Schild, who is representing the printed circuit board industry, and you're also running their association too, aren't you? That's exactly right. I'm fortunate enough to be the executive director of PCBA and excited for what we've got lying ahead in, in Washington. Well, association heads have special challenges, but this is the world capital for it, so you're in the right place. And why did the circuit board industry leave the United States? I mean, there's an environmental impact that they have, and that can get expensive and complicated. And the labor costs, or what else? I think that if you look at what's happened over the last 25 years, we as a nation have not prioritized American manufacturing, and specifically high-tech manufacturing, and other nations have. And foreign subsidies make it very attractive to do business in other nations, uh, to build factories, to hire workers. But there's no reason that can't be done here. As we've seen with the CHIPS Act, where public money goes, private money will follow. That $52 billion that you mentioned that the CHIPS Act brings to the table, it's been matched by $400 billion from private industry. We believe that a similar investment in PCBs, and we're asking for a fraction of that money, 3 to $5 billion for capital expenditures, for workforce development. We believe that will be matched by private investment. And I think the more important part of our initiative is a tax credit, an incentive for the manufacturers to buy American PCBs. Let's make it attractive to buy high technology built here in America. And we think then the whole ecosystem grows and thrives domestically. And there was a bill in the 117th Congress to do that, not reintroduced in the 118th. Who's behind it and what are what else do we need to know about that bill? Well, we're proud that we have bipartisan support for what was known as the Supporting American Printed Circuit Boards Act. I'm confident that that's going to be reintroduced soon. And again, we've got champions on both the left and the right, uh, the R's and the D's, because I think it's a nonpartisan issue to say that we want to have more high technology manufactured here in America. And I think that the Congress, on the heels of the success of the CHIPS Act, uh, should take up the rest of the ecosystem uh, and move forward with this bill and others. They've got a lot of priorities. Who are the principal sponsors? Sure. We're very lucky to have Representative Blake Moore from Utah and Representative Anna Eshoo from California as the original co-sponsors of this legislation. And we've met with a lot of folks on the Hill, and we see a lot of interest and a lot of champions for American high-tech manufacturing. And you mentioned that, of course, for military use, a PCB and the rest of it has to be manufactured in this country. So do you get the sense that DOD is invested in this particular issue, or do they feel like they're okay supply chain-wise? Absolutely. The Department of Defense, I think, is one of the original federal agencies that realized that we have challenges around microelectronic sourcing. And for many years, they have been invested in shoring up domestic capacity and making sure that their supply chains, for the things that our men and women depend on to you know, do their jobs and come home safely, that those things are reliable, that they're trusted, and that they're ready when the men and women in uniform need them. So the DOD has been all over this issue. They've got a number of officials who are focused on this. And honestly, they've been great partners with our industry in helping to amplify our message. So right now, the main thrust of the association is to get Congress to reconsider this bill. Absolutely. We think that the president's message from last week, let's finish the job, 
applies very well to a discussion about microelectronics manufacturing. We've made investment in semiconductors, but chips don't float. We can't go anywhere if we're simply making semiconductors here in America. Uh, Let's finish the job. Let's invest in PCBs and substrates. All right. Communications consultant David Schild represents the printed circuit board industry. Thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a... um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman with bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. She would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more 
and sought out to do that, and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have you mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger. 
towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you've got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the way I that I kind of brilliant. see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.